Welcome to the You Love and You Learn podcast, the place to learn about all things love, relationships, relationship anxiety, and to deconstruct the one-size-fits-all narrative of what it means to be in a happy relationship. I'm your host, Sarah Yudkin, a relationship anxiety coach who's on a mission to discuss the nuances of love and relationships that I wish someone would have shared with me years ago. My goal with each episode is for you to leave with an expanded definition of love and relationships and with practices to carry with you in your life and relationships on a day-to-day basis. I'm so grateful to have you here. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. So happy to have you here. I'm really excited about this episode. It's something I get asked about a lot, actually, and I figured it might be fun to do a podcast to talk about it because... I want to share some of the key insights I've learned through my own journey of learning about love and relationships. And to do so, I want to share five books that have changed the way I view love and relationships. And there's many more than five. And there's many more things that I've explored besides these five books. But these five books really were pivotal in my own discovery process over the last few years, and I've learned a lot from them. So I want to share what they are and then share some key ideas from these books and really also just like kind of pay tribute to everyone that has come before me. There's thousands and thousands of people who have studied and talked about love and relationships and I'm so grateful that we live in a time where we can learn from such amazing people. And I think, I mean, I've always loved reading and I've loved listening to podcasts, which is why I've created my own. But I think that we really do live in such a cool time where information is at our disposal so easily. Of course, that can then also be overwhelming sometimes if we try to memorize all of it or just intellectualize every single thing that we learn. But Anywho, I got on a little tangent there, but all of that to say is I'm really excited to share these five books with you. And this is a great episode, I would say, especially if you're looking to talk more with friends or your partner or anybody really about the topic of love and relationships. I would love if you're able to send this episode to somebody else. I feel like we're all looking for recommendations all the time, or at least I know for me, it's fun to share recommended books, recommended podcasts with people that I love and care about. So it would mean the world to me if you find today's episode helpful to share it with somebody that you know will also really enjoy and benefit from it. All right, without further ado, I'm quickly just going to read the five books and kind of the the key takeaway of why this changed my perspective on love and relationships. And then I'm going to go into each one of them and share a mix of some quotes that really resonate with me from the book, some ideas that resonate with me, and some of my own reflections of how this has helped me show up differently in my relationship or just perceive love and relationships in a new way. So in no particular order of importance, the five books are Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel, And this was a big one that changed the way I view passion in relationships and why we transition out of the honeymoon phase and just kind of how relationships evolve over time with 
our passion and excitement. So I'm excited to dive into that one. Next is The Wisdom of Anxiety by Cheryl Paul. This was such a big part of my journey. It really validated my experience of relationship anxiety and brought forward a compassionate interpretation of it. And I've recommended this book to, I mean, all of the books here I've recommended very often, but this one I feel like I've recommended a ton to clients, to people in my online community, and I highly recommend reading it if you haven't. This next book is Eight Dates by John and Julie Gottman. This was one of the first books I actually recommended publicly on my You Love and You Learn page. I think honestly, and by the time you're listening to this, it will be past the three-year anniversary of creating my You Love and You Learn account. I'm recording this in the beginning of June, but this is coming out um, the mid to end of June. And I just remember like right around this time three years ago talking about this book because I had read it and I had so many insights and aha moments from it. And then Nate and I actually went through the book together and did most of the eight dates. And this book really helped me understand some important relationship dynamics that I hadn't really been aware of or I just hadn't really thought about, to be honest. And it opened a lot of doors of discussion with Nate about our shared values, our shared life visions, and just kind of got us talking. This book was one that made me realize that even though, of course, Nate and I are pretty different in certain ways or we're just different people in certain personality aspects, that we did really have so many shared values and a shared vision for how things um, were hoping to go in our life. And so I think that when I was reading this, it made me feel pretty good about where we were headed. Now, I'll give a quick note here that even if you go through this book and there are things that are different between you and your partner and you're noticing differences, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these differences mean that the relationship is bad or wrong. So I'll just give that note right at the start. The next book is The Relationship Handbook by George Pransky. So this is a recent book that I read. It's actually um, now like 30 years old. I just looked it up earlier and it came out originally in 1992. So some of it is a little bit old school compared to some of the other books I just shared. Um, but this was huge for me because I feel like there is so much timeless wisdom in this book. They recently published a 25th anniversary version of it and it changed the way that I perceive moments of relational challenge so much and it changed my understanding of why these things happen. This was a perspective that I kind of intuitively saw in my own experiences already or at least just by being in my relationship I kind of saw this playing out but I think it was really helpful to hear someone explain it and I'll share more later about what I mean by this. And then last but certainly not least, All About Love by Bell Hooks. And this book really opened up my perspective on love and what love means and not necessarily having certainty about what love means because it's just, you know, this big open topic and everyone really can interpret love in such different ways. But there were so many great pieces of wisdom around love and really got me thinking about it in a new way. So now I want to go into each of these with a little bit more detail. 
And I'll just go in order of the same way I just read these off, which is mating in captivity. And I have some notes here in front of me with certain quotes that I want to share or certain concepts from the book. And this book really is just so incredible. Esther Perel is so incredible. I love the way she thinks. I love the way she talks about love and relationships. And one of the main points that I took away from this book, and again, I share this with my clients all the time because I don't think this stuff is talked about often enough, is she talks about how security and passion are two separate but also two fundamental human needs. And these two separate needs spring from completely different motives and they pull us in different directions. So if you think about it, passion is like one way that we operate in relationships it's more about like newness and excitement and mystery and the beginning stages of love and relationship tend to have more of an opportunity for these types of moments it's not guaranteed but it can depending on how things start and then there's this other side of a relationship which is more comfortable and secure and you're already a little bit more committed you know like what's going to happen it's a little bit more predictable and if you think about these things, they're kind of two opposite ends of a pendulum. They're not necessarily things that are going to both be present at the same time, because if you are fully secure and safe in something, there's really not that much mystery. And so she talks about this beautifully. Um, And a quote that she shares is that there's a powerful tendency in long-term relationships to favor the predictable over the unpredictable, right? So we want to know, like, this is someone that is committed to me and is going to be there for me. We don't want there to be this question mark of like, does this person want to be there for me? And are they going to be consistent, right? That's not necessarily creating a safe foundation. But then she also goes on to say that eroticism thrives on the unpredictable, desire butts heads with habits and repetition. So passion, eroticism, whatever you want to call it, mystery, excitement, you can see how this is kind of an opposite need compared to habit, repetition, waking up in the same way every morning, seeing your partner, knowing exactly what they're doing at all times. And so I think intuitively, if you are in a longer term relationship, you may have seen this play out. You may understand like, oh, why aren't things like they were at the beginning? Or even if you didn't have a honeymoon stage in the beginning, there's still probably this like excitement or buzz around like, well, this is a new relationship. And so I'm like trying to understand it. And then eventually that wears off because you understand this person's there for you. And so I just think this book is so important because it really talks about how there's different things that go into what make a close emotional intimate connection with somebody and then what makes for good passion and sex and those two things are kind of opposite so the more closely we are you know like telling someone our every detail of our life or the more closely we're sharing every single thought and feeling with someone and the more that we are becoming really connected emotionally there can be sometimes where this increased emotional intimacy can lead to then a decrease in passion or sexual desire. And Esther Perel saw this in a lot of her work. She says that it's a puzzling inverse correlation that the breakdown of desire appears to be an unintentional consequence of the creation 
of intimacy. And maybe you've seen this in your own relationship too. I definitely have acknowledged this in my own relationship at times where it feels like Nate and I are just so connected and doing every little thing together. And so a solution that Esther Perel talks about in the book and something that I have been very mindful of ever since reading this book. And funny enough, Nate actually was just on a work trip for a few days and we were not together for a few days. And I saw this, the effects of this in real time. And she says that instead of always striving for closeness, she argues that couples may be better off cultivating their separate selves nurturing a sense of selfhood and i think that there's this myth that in order to be in a happy healthy relationship our partners and us have to do everything together and we have to want to be doing everything together all the time we have to have the same hobbies hang out with the same people all the time love the same things and talk about all of it 24 7 and be all of in each other's business but with so much love and excitement all the time And I personally have found in my own relationship, and it was really validating to read this in the book, that that for me is not necessarily sustainable. And it actually causes me to feel in some ways like the relationship is overwhelming. And so in this like rom-com fantasy world, a couple will only ever want to be doing things with each other. But I think that the research that Esther Perel shows in this book is a great argument, so to speak, for getting that sense of selfhood, getting that separateness and cultivating time for you and the things that you love to do and giving your partner the opportunity to do the same. And a couple last things here on this book. She says that love and desire are two rhythmic yet clashing forces that are always in a state of flux and always looking for the balance point. And I think this is really interesting because the kind of like that pendulum I was talking about earlier, I think that if we acknowledge that love and desire are going to be kind of always looking for the balance point, always in a state of flux and never necessarily both there at the same time, it can just make you feel a little bit better about where things are at in your own relationship because you can have so much love for your partner, but maybe there's not as much desire showing up all the time. And then maybe if you spend some time apart and you reconnect back to yourself for a bit, there's a little bit less love and connection, but then your mystery and desire might revisit. And so it's just worth thinking about this stuff. And in the book, she kind of talks a little bit more about like how to bring about this separateness. And one other solution that I'll kind of end with here is that she talks about that some of the secrets to a long-lasting relationship are by remembering that monogamy is not necessarily something that should be an enforced compliance of like, I have to be here, you have to be here. It's actually much more sexy and much more, um, I guess, free, if you will, if all of the parties involved in a relationship are showing up because they want to be there, not because they feel like they need to be there. And so when we remember that both ourselves and our partners are actually choosing to be there, but that we don't have to be there, I think that shows this mystery that is kind of always available. And I know that can be triggering for people where it's like, oh my gosh, but 
that means that maybe in the future that one of us will not choose to be there. But that's exactly why when you're both choosing to be there in the here and the now and in the present, it can help make the relationship more meaningful. It can help make the relationship more meaningful to know that there's plenty of other fish in the sea, but you're still choosing your partner. That is actually very, very powerful, and it puts the power back in your hands of the choice of the matter. So that is what I'll say about mating in captivity. I can't recommend the book enough. I highly recommend it. I already just said that. So (laughs) let's move on next to the wisdom of anxiety. Now, as I said earlier, this book really has been something that helped change my life. All of these books have been, but Wisdom of Anxiety is one of those books that I just really recommend anybody read because even though the part of this book that really stood out to me most was around relationship anxiety, Cheryl brings a very compassionate and loving perspective to anxiety as a whole. And I think that oftentimes if you experience anxiety, there's this sense of shame or frustration or this shouldn't be here, I shouldn't have anxiety. And the book really just gives such a loving and kind and gentle perspective on how to show up not only with general anxiety, but also relationship anxiety. So the parts that I'm going to focus on in this podcast are more focused towards relationships, just because this is more of a relationship-focused or love-focused in general podcast. However, I think that you're going to learn so much about anxiety from reading it. So a quote that really stood out to me kind of right at the beginning of the book is that relationships ask us to grow in ways that nothing else does or can. And the reason why this really resonated with me is because growth is uncomfortable. Growth is intentionally kind of getting out of a comfort zone and usually involves change and transition and things being new. And so everything that asks us to grow is also going to bring about some uncertainty or maybe even some confusion and a transitional period which involves loss and evolving into something new that is unknown. So I just want to remind everyone here, like that is such a pivotal reason why relationship anxiety can show up is because relationships really ask us to grow and evolve. And that growth means being uncomfortable. Another concept that I really love Cheryl talking about is that There can be changes and transitions that are positive in theory, like people from the outside looking in. Um, The the change is positive and we deem it as positive, such like as a marriage or moving into your dream house, whatever it is. And overall, yes, that is a positive change and it has some joy and fulfillment. However, she talks about how it is normal and healthy to feel sad or confused or angry disoriented, scared, terrified, numb, lonely, or vulnerable. And how much of a permission slip would that give yourself if you were allowed to feel a mix of feelings for quote, quote, happy or joyful celebrations or transitions? I know for me, that has been very true. Like when I moved to Sweden with Nate, 
there were so many exciting new things and it was such a big deal and so awesome that we were going in this big new step and moving to a new country together. And there was a lot of transitional stuff. There was some homesickness. There was some confusion getting my new business set up. There was some loneliness and vulnerability of having to meet new friends in this new country. There was this pressure of like, oh my gosh, Nate and I really need this to work because we're in a new country. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes with these transitional phases. And even if you're not moving into a new house in a new country together, it can just be a transition moving in with your partner even in the same city. So just giving yourself that compassion when difficult emotions come up during changes and transitions. To that point, Cheryl also talks in the book about how boredom and loneliness are parts of being human. They're part of the human experience. So trying to get rid of boredom or get rid of loneliness is not necessarily the best goal. Um, And we can try by just constantly stimulating ourselves, constantly doing things. But if we're willing to actually feel boredom or feel loneliness, And even the discomfort of that and the sadness that might might come up because of that, then that will help us take the pressure off of our relationships to protect us from feelings of boredom or loneliness and not make our partner fully responsible for never letting us be bored, never letting us be lonely because there's just parts of being human that will involve those moments. There's a beautiful quote in the book, we only live one life. And we make choices along the way that by the very definition of making one choice, exclude and shut the door to other choices. What this means, especially for someone with relationship anxiety, is that by picking one partner, then we are closing the doors to other partners. By choosing to move to a certain city, we're closing the doors on other cities, at least for now. You know, choices can evolve and change over time. But I think the anxious mind is so focused on wanting to make the right choice and knowing exactly how things will turn out. But unfortunately, we don't get to live split lives to test it out and see how it's going to go. I've talked about this movie before. I'm forgetting if I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I've definitely mentioned it on social media. But there's this great movie on Netflix called Look Both Ways that actually does test, like split test this girl's life with two different ways something could go and you see what would happen if one decision went one way and one decision went another way or one circumstance went one way one circumstance went another way and what i found is so interesting and i highly recommend you watch the movie um but without giving away too many spoilers what i found was interesting is that there were yes differences between the two stories of course but there were a lot of similarities or things that ended up happening kind of similarly in both of the lives, even if they came about in different ways. And so this gets into a conversation on like, is life predetermined or like, do we get to make our own choices? But I think that it was an interesting movie to realize that like, no matter what happens, we will be okay in our life. And instead of putting pressure on ourselves to have this one perfect life where every single choice is perfect and we know exactly how it will turn out, to grieve some of the choices that we won't get to make because we're kind of closing off those opportunities potentially by making the choices that we are. (sighs) I love that thought just to like allow ourselves to let go of some of these 
lives that we want to try and have, but also making space for maybe the pain or the grief that might come up with that. Now, the concept of relationship anxiety that she brings up in this book is talking about how it's completely understandable that anxiety is showing up mostly in our intimate relationships. And this isn't necessarily just with partners, but with friends or colleagues or relatives with children. And because anxiety is this protection from vulnerability, from, you know, feeling scared or feeling out of our comfort zone, feeling uncertain, relationships are big catalysts for vulnerability. And so Cheryl just talks about how it makes so much sense that because relationships ask us to be vulnerable and grow so much, it's no wonder that anxiety is showing up so much in these relationships. A beautiful quote of hers is, if one of the root causes of anxiety is the need to find certainty and ground in a fundamentally groundless world, and if romantic relationships are the place where we are rendered most vulnerable and thus groundless, why would we be surprised when anxiety shows up there? Ah, yep, that is just such a freeing thought, such a freeing thought that really relationships are such a understandable place for anxiety to show up. Last but not least, one um, takeaway from this book is Cheryl has this list of what love is not and what love is that I think is really beautiful. And the list of what love is not is that love is not infatuation. Love is not an answer to your problems or the missing puzzle piece. The only person who can rescue you is you. Love is not fitting into an image from rom-coms or People magazine. Love is not unwavering certainty that you've met the one. Love is not scintillating conversation every time you see each other. I'm assuming that means very interesting conversation. <laughs> Love is not feeling attracted to your partner every moment of every day. Love is not effortless. Love is not liking each other all the time. Your partner will irritate you and that's normal. Then she goes on to share what love is. Love is action. Expressing love through someone's love language or expressing love in the ways that we know our partner enjoys receiving love. Love is a choice and a commitment. Love is effort. The real love will ask you to extend yourself for your partner in ways that stretch you beyond your comfort zone. Love is an opportunity to grow and learn about yourself. Love is a risk. And love is more complicated than our culture dares to acknowledge, as evidenced by the fact that we only have one word for love. Which is very interesting. In the English language, there's just one word for love. Um, and that can be very confusing. So again, highly recommend this book and very grateful for Cheryl and her work with relationship anxiety. All right, moving on to eight dates. So I absolutely loved this book. And one of the reasons I loved it is because John Gottman has been researching relationships for over 40 years. And he has thousands and thousands of hours of recorded insights from couples. He's worked with thousands of couples 
And this is one of him and his wife Julie's more recent books. So I knew that it was really up to date with all of the juicy research and really something that he was able to kind of look back on all of his research and understand how to share the most important points that he wanted people to get. So that's really why I loved and trusted this book so much. I've had a couple people who I've recommended this to. They've shared that this book in some ways can be a bit much, or maybe they were putting pressure on themselves to do this book perfectly or to like get through it perfectly. And I'll tell you why that might be. Basically, this book has eight different dates, and each date, so to speak, is around a topic that can be somewhat big, like finances, sex, family, career, stuff like that. And so this book, I can understand why there's pressure of like, I have to do this with my partner, or I have to go through it perfectly, and I have to make sure I get all the questions answered and all of that. But I think that you can honestly read this book by yourself and still learn so much from it. And it will give you ideas of questions to ask your partner, not necessarily in a structured way, but just general questions of like things that you want to get to know about your partner to help you understand if you guys have shared values and shared visions for life. So I personally love the book, but of course, like anything I share, you don't have to read it. You don't have to go through it and it might not resonate with you as much as it did with me. One of the big relationship myths that really was busted in this book for me is that you shouldn't be fighting or disagreeing in a relationship for it to be healthy. And there's this quote that I love, and I actually have this in my quote or in my course, Deconstruct the Doubts, as well, which is happy relationships aren't relationships where there is no fighting. They are relationships where repairs are made after regrettable incidents happen and where a couple connects with each other day to day. Happy couples are not so different from unhappy couples. They are simply able to make repairs to their relationship easier and faster so they can get back to the joy of being together. This is so important because I feel like there's this negative stigma of what it means to have disagreements, but really, All of the research that John Gottman has shows that the amount of disagreeing or the way that you disagree is less important than how much you repair after that. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there should be abuse happening or like verbal abuse or physical abuse happening in these disagreements. And of course, you will have to set your own boundaries around communication in your relationship for you. But I think this was such a big permission slip for me that it's okay to have moments of disagreeing. And now I feel like it makes sense. Like if everyone's just agreeing with everything all the time, maybe not everyone is fully telling their full truth because they're just trying to be agreeable. So this was a big, big permission slip to me. Another part of this book that I really resonated with, with, excuse me, really resonated with and was really validating for me was that they talk about having doubts in your relationship and he just normalized it in such a way that was like oh yeah other people think like this too and instead of it being this huge deal it was just kind of like yeah this is a fact of life so there's a couple of quotes that really explain this well he said there is no question that committing to a person can be a terrifying prospect it means putting all of our eggs in one basket 
There will be no one waiting in the wings if this relationship doesn't work out and there isn't a safety net. And then him and Julie go on to share that you may even have a moment when you wonder or even believe that you could quote, quote, do better than the person who is in front of you at this moment, annoying you, hurting you, or letting you down. The fact is couples that are truly committed to each other don't have one foot out the door. They have everything invested or they have invested everything in this one relationship. Their eggs are in one basket. They don't threaten to leave when times get tough and they don't spend time thinking that their ideal partner is still out there somewhere and that this fantasy person will be easier to live with or more adept at meeting their needs than the very real, very human, and very flawed person they have chose to love, honor, and cherish. I thought this was so helpful for me to read and understand because they were acknowledging like there's going to be moments where you're questioning if this person's right and there's going to be moments where you think a fantasy person is out there easier to live with and you're going to wish that that person was with you. But they're kind of acknowledging as well in some ways that this is a myth and that that isn't very helpful for your relationship. And they encourage you to take that foot out the door and really decide and commit to be with this person. And I talk about this a lot too. Deciding and committing does not mean that you get a guaranteed outcome and it doesn't mean that you know everything's going to work. It just means that you stop entertaining these thoughts of what if someone better is out there or what if this isn't the right person, what if this, what if that, and you either decide like I'm going to give this my all and I want this to be my person and I can't guarantee it will be, but I'm going to put my eggs in this basket or you acknowledge that there are some things that maybe we are out of sync on, like there's big core value differences. One of us wants to have kids, the other one doesn't. One of us wants to travel the world and the other one doesn't like flying, whatever it is. If there are big things like that or whatever else you have identified as big major clashes, then there might be a time when you're like, okay, that that doesn't actually feel like it will work for me and I have to, as sad as it would be, acknowledge that. But the limbo period is so, I guess, painful for us really as someone with relationship anxiety and it's not very helpful for the relationship but that doesn't mean you rush the decision right it doesn't mean you have to know that answer but i can acknowledge that the limbo period isn't necessarily helpful for you and so a lot of times this limbo period is just waiting for us to have this moment of clarity and feel like, oh, yes, I'm suddenly ready to make this commitment. But what I found is that I had to make the commitment before I felt ready. And then that made me feel better about the commitment instead of waiting for this magical time where I suddenly just felt ready. I had to decide that I'm going to do it even if I don't feel ready. And then it all, I guess, the rest is history from there. Another really, really important part of this book for me is when the Gottmans talk about perpetual problems or perpetual challenges in relationships, and they share that 69% of the time when couples talk about the one thing that they always argue about, it's what we call a perpetual problem. It's not going to be resolved. Yet within these perpetual problems that you can't ever seem to resolve lie the greatest opportunity for growth and intimacy. So if something isn't a deal breaker, then it's actually something that even though there's fundamental personality differences between you and your partner, they can be the biggest opportunities for growth and intimacy, even if they stretch us out of our comfort zone. And 
I thought this was so fascinating because 69% of the time, there's going to be a problem that isn't resolved. So instead of thinking that you're just going to go find a partner where there is something that is resolvable, it's really important to acknowledge that 69% of these perpetual problems are just due to fundamental personality differences. And this research was game-changing for me, and it made me realize that even if there's stuff that's different about me and Nate, then that doesn't mean that we have to resolve it. It just gives us opportunities to continue understanding one another and learning from one another. Couple last things here from eight dates. Another myth that they talk about in this book is that you have to have similar ideas about fun and adventure to have a successful relationship. This is a big one that I hear from clients a lot. What if we don't share the same activities that we like all the time? Or what if I like to do this and they like to do that? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the wrong relationship at all. They, John and Julie have been married for a long time and they talk about how they have their own activities that they love and enjoy. And then they have some shared activities. And of course, they work together, so that's slightly different. But they have always kept their own activities that they love and enjoy. And even some of those things directly clash. Like Julie doesn't like eating carbs. And then John recently got into baking sourdough bread. I heard them talking about this on a podcast. It was kind of funny. And she was like, oh, great. Like this this habit of his, this new way that he's enjoying himself and having fun, this directly clashes with what I enjoy or what I'm able to do. And when she dug deeper, she was asking John more about it. And the reason why he started baking bread is because it felt like it was a way for him to connect with his mother's energy who had since passed because baking bread was something she really loved to do. And so then Julie realized this was something that was important to him. And it's not all about her and what she can't or cannot eat. It's about what fills up the person and the partner and why they're doing this thing. So sometimes I think we're just so focused on having this like perfect thing and the perfect partner doing everything that we want that we forget that we also want someone who supports our unique habits and the ways that we enjoy things too. Last thing I'll say here on this book is they have a great quote. The goal is not to try and make the other person be like you. The goal is to learn from them and to benefit from the ways that you're different. I think that's so important and not trying to be with our clones, but trying to see what are the ways that this person can be the yin to my yang and how can I learn from this and be a better partner and person in the world because of this person that I am dating and existing with. All right, moving on to the relationship handbook. This one was really big for me, like I mentioned earlier. It was something that I've seen show up in the way that I am with Nate and in so many of the relationships that I see with my clients or that I hear about. And the way it was explained was just so different than I had heard and it really resonated with me. In this book, George Pransky is talking about how it's important to make a shift away from a problems-focused relationship to actually uh, focusing in your relationships on the connection and the support of one another. Because 
if we're constantly focused on fixing problems, then problems are always going to be the thing that's top of mind for us. Whereas if we are really focused on staying connected and supportive of one another, then that is what we are going to nourish in our relationship. He talks about how there's kind of two different spirals we can get into. One of them is this upward spiral in our relationship where we are sharing the things that are working, where we're constantly focused on bringing ourselves back to connection, and where we're giving each other the benefit of the doubt in the periods that are more challenging, but still trusting that we will be able to get back to this connection and support of one another. Whereas the opposite, and I have been stuck in here many times before, is this downward spiral. And the downward spirals are where we're constantly looking at what's wrong and we're trying to fix all these problems and that's the only thing we're focused on. And the difference usually between whether we're in this upward spiral or a downward spiral is often what mood we are in. Now, this may sound almost so obvious and so simple, but if you really think about it, this is so, so spot on. How many times have you reacted differently to something your partner does based on what mood you're in? So the same thing could happen with me and Nate. And when I'm in a good mood, I can brush it off or barely even notice. But when I'm in a bad mood, and this is what they talk about in the book, then this thing that's going wrong can look like this tip of an iceberg to a much bigger problem. And we can then hook into that and be like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? about my relationship and we start going into that downward spiral of everything is bad, everything is horrible. So let me give you an example of this. Sometimes in the middle of the week, Nate will work from home for the first half of the day and then he'll go into the office because he has his office here in Sweden, whereas I work from home. And so most times we're both pretty good about like cleaning up our stuff. Um, And even at night, like, I mean, I'm not one to talk because at night there are times when we'll have a cup of tea or we'll have an evening snack and then I just leave my stuff on the table or, or forget to clean it up or we're just tired and then the next morning Nate will clean up my stuff. So he does that a lot for me so I can acknowledge that. But there are definitely times where after, let's say, a midweek lunch, Nate is at home, we've just eaten together, Um, we just had lunch or whatever it is. And then he's kind of heading out the door for a meeting that he needs to get to at the office. And there's a leftover bowl that was for the oatmeal or a leftover mug of coffee from earlier in the morning. And because I work from home and I want to sit at that table where we just ate, then for me, if I'm in an irritated mood, I could look at that and be like, oh, like he left that. He's so disrespectful. I'm always going to be cleaning up after him forever, blah, blah, blah. I live with a man child. Like I can literally go there. And I'm sure many of us have been there before. But if I'm in a good mood, I'm feeling like, I don't know, lighthearted. I'm just like ready to get on with my day. Maybe I'm in the mood to clean and organize whatever it is then I'm totally fine moving those things to the dishwasher like five feet away and I don't care. And I'm not looking at it as, oh my gosh, Nate sucks. He's so terrible. I'm just like, oh, like let me just clean up and do something for him or for the relationship or for even just the clean area. So I think this is such a important point to make because when we notice that we are 
losing our good feelings in that moment or if we notice that we're in not the best mood then we can kind of use that as an internal compass of like all right maybe it's not the best time or place to be making judgments about my partner in my relationship because I know that I have this lens on that's looking for what's wrong. I think this is such an important thing to just even speak about because, again, it sounds so simple, but I think that what happens a lot of time, and I'm guilty of this as well, is like we go to a therapist or we go to a coach or we go to something being like, oh, I need to fix all these problems that we have, but we're trying to fix things from this negative headspace versus how can we get into a place of more love and more connection with our partner and then actually collaborate together to solve a problem from that place of love and connection. Now, this isn't necessarily easy to do, but I think it's very worthwhile to practice. Another part of this book that I found was interesting is that Uh, George Pransky shares that issues in a marriage or relationship are the symptoms of disharmony, not the cause of disharmony. So that's essentially saying that the challenges or the issues coming up are because there is disharmony or disconnection or a low mood versus these issues and challenges are not the cause of us feeling disharmony. I think this is so spot on to the relationship anxiety experience. We think that our partner or the relationship not being perfect is causing us to feel anxious, but really our anxiety is part of what's causing us to view our partner and our relationship from this negative headspace. And I know that sounds really, really counterintuitive, but it is spot on to everything that I've experienced and everything that I see in my clients. I sent this quote out in my email newsletter the other day, but there was a quote from this book where he shares that complementary and incompatible are two sides of the same coin. So what that means is that what some person thinks is an incompatibility, another person may think is a way that their partner compliments them, that they're the yin to the yang, whatever it is. And so just knowing that there's usually two ways to see the same challenge coming up. And if you are, are you worried about these differences or incompatibilities, maybe just asking the question, well, how could this be something that complements me? Or is there an opportunity for me to learn and grow here or see the world in a different way? And a couple last things here um, is that when we are losing good feelings in our relationship, that is often when we are most focused on the problems or what's missing. But I also want to acknowledge that if you experience relationship OCD or relationship anxiety, that when you are experiencing good feelings and connection and love in the relationship, there can still be moments of worry because this is such a vulnerable experience. Like when things are going really well, that can feel unfamiliar to many people because they're not used to such a steady, healthy, loving relationship. And so It's just a chance to check in and understand ourselves and look for ways that we can slowly and steadily push ourselves out of our comfort zone and hold more space for love and connection. If we notice every single time that we're in a moment of deep love and connection with our partner that we feel anxious, that may be a sign 
that feeling love and vulnerability and connection is still outside of our comfort zone. And so we can slowly practice reminding ourselves that we're worthy of this love and this connection and that we're capable of being in that loving, caring moment. Last few things is that in the book, George shares that anytime you can share hopeful, high-spirited thoughts, your relationship will benefit. Positive thoughts are just as real as negative thoughts and feelings. And in fact, they can even be more real. Negative thoughts are always associated with fears of the future or negative memories of the past, but only the present is real. If you communicate negative thoughts to each other, then they will seem more real. But if you must share these negative thoughts, warn the other person that it is your mood speaking, not you. How powerful would that be if every single time you were in a negative mood and you were sharing something with your partner, you acknowledge like, this is because I'm in a negative mood right now, instead of feeling like that thing is the 100% end all be all reality. I don't know. I just think this is such an interesting idea. And this is not to gaslight yourself and say that anything that happens in a negative mood is not real, but just realizing that negative moods pass just like positive moods pass. And so we get to decide which one we give more weight to. Are we going to give more weight to everything that happens in our negative moods? Or are we going to give more weight to the things that happen when we're in a positive mood? All right. That was the last bit about the relationship handbook. Really, really enjoyed that book. It was one of the most recent ones that I've read. And then last but not least, All About Love. Such a beautiful book. One of the first quotes that jumped out at me was, the word love is most often defined as a noun, yet all the more astute theorists of love acknowledge that we would all be better or that we would all love better if we used it as a verb. So we would all love better if we used it as a verb. And I think that's so powerful, basically meaning that love gets to be an action and something that we do, not just something that is there. Another thing Bell Hooks shares is that when we face pain in relationships, our first response is often to sever the bonds rather than to maintain commitment. This is, I think, what's going on a lot of times with relationship anxiety is that we experience pain or discomfort or uncertainty or whatever it is, and our immediate thought is, well, maybe we're not with the right person. Maybe we need to break up. Maybe another person would make it so I don't have any pain or confusion. And that is not the full story, as you've probably heard me share a lot. So I think that it's really interesting that A lot of people who study and understand love know that there's going to be pain that come up in our relationships, painful moments, painful feelings, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to leave that relationship. Of course, use your own judgment here. One of the things she also gets into is talking about self-love, and I know I talked about that earlier in a podcast a couple weeks back about my journey with self-love and bell hooks shares that one of the best ways to be self-loving or the way that we can guide ourselves to more self-love is to give ourselves the love that we are often dreaming about receiving from others and i think that this concept is it's not new right we've probably all heard like be loving towards yourself just like you would a best friend or 
be loving to yourself in the same way that you would towards a stranger or someone else. But I don't think we oftentimes sit and reflect about what that would actually look like. Like, what are we saying to ourselves? How are we showing up and treating ourselves in the way that we would want to be treated by another person? So it's just good food for thought. Another concept in the book that really stood out to me is the reminder that all relationships have ups and downs, but romantic, fantasy, rom-coms, whatever you have, will often nurture the belief that difficulties and downtimes are an indication of a lack of love rather than part of the process. Whereas Bell Hooks shares that in actuality, true love thrives off of the difficulties. The foundation of such love is the assumption that we want to grow and expand and to become more fully ourselves. There is no change that does not bring with it a feeling of challenge and loss. When we experience true love, it may feel as though our lives are in danger and we may feel threatened. So that is why there can be these down periods in love and relationships is because we feel like the change and the uncertainty is a threat, but really this is such a big opportunity to grow and to become just more expansive, more capable, and more resilient. I think that this book really highlighted some of the key themes of relationship anxiety, especially when Bell Hooks acknowledges that she realized in her life that she really wanted to be in love and understand love and learn about love, but that she was afraid of intimacy. She was afraid of intimacy and deep connection. And I think that's really what so many of us are experiencing if we experience relationship anxiety is this fear of intimacy. And if we can acknowledge that, then it gives us an opportunity to just slowly and steadily practice being more open to it. Last two quotes here of this book and really of the episode is, she shares many people want love to function like a drug and giving them an immediate and sustained high. They want to do nothing, just passively receive the good feeling. How many of us are guilty of this? I can raise my hand here and acknowledge that sometimes I'm very passive. I just want to receive the good feeling of love. And when it's not there, I judge myself or I judge Nate or I judge our relationship. I've gotten much better at this. I I really have been scanning the horizon less to try and search for this. But there are still moments where that can happen. And when we realize that we're just being very passive instead of trying to then act in a loving way, I think that we acknowledge that a lot of times maybe we are not showing up and acting with as much love as we would like to. Now, I'll give a note here and a disclaimer that there are people that sometimes overly give love and sacrifice their own well-being to just give, 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 give. That's not what I'm talking about here. If you feel like you're constantly giving and not receiving, that's not what I mean. But if you feel like you are not necessarily taking action, but you're hoping that love will just kind of come to you as a feeling, then that's what I'm talking about here. And lastly, and a really great place, I think, to end this podcast on is Bell Hooks shares that to practice the art of loving, we have to first choose love, admit to ourselves that we want to know love and be loving, even if we do not know what that means. Even if we do not know what love means, we can acknowledge that we want to know love and we want to be loving. And what a powerful practice 
to just acknowledge that we want to keep knowing love, understanding love, learning about love, you love and you learn, and be loving and practice being loving. All right. Thanks so much for sticking with me. This ended up being a little bit of a longer episode than an- than I anticipated, but it was a lot of fun for me just to reflect on these five books because I love them so dearly. I've learned so much from these, and every time I revisit, it's like I have new aha moments all over again. So if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody. I'm sure someone else could benefit from hearing about these five books. Thank you again, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the You Love and You Learn podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people that can hear this message. And it's really important to me to get this message out to the world and to create a space where people can learn about love and relationships in a way that is not judgmental, in a way that helps them expand their perspective from the cultural narratives that we've heard and seen in the movies and in Hollywood and the media. And the more ratings and reviews that are there, the more people that can hear this message. So thank you again so much. It really means the world to me that you are listening and see you in the next episode.